0: Be merciful to us now, O Father, as we come before your word and seek to have it to x-ray our hearts and to reveal to us what needs to change, because we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and we would bow before you and offer you praises that are acceptable to you, a holy sacrifice. And so, Father, I pray that you would empower us now with ears that hear and me with a voice and a heart to speak forth your truth this morning, and I pray, Father, that you would be glorified in it and that we, your people, would be changed. For we pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. This is the beginning of Thanksgiving week, and there is much for which to be thankful. I suppose all of us will have opportunities with our families this week as and we gather around the table and we offer praises to God, there will be opportunity for all of us to give thanks for God's blessings this year. We will probably be thankful for God's provision for another year, and thankful for our jobs and our homes and our parents and our children. We'll be thankful for new marriages and for new babies and for new grandbabies. There are so many things for us to be thankful for, but I wonder if the most significant things, the most significant things from God's perspective are things that we will be the most thankful for, the things for which Jesus Christ paid the highest price. Or will we merely be thankful for a great meal and time with family? For instance, do we feel a deep sense of thankfulness for the forgiveness that God purchased for us on the cross, for the guilt that has been removed from our soul, for the righteousness that we desperately needed, didn't have, and couldn't earn, but were given freely by God's grace. Will our deepest sense of gratitude be over the fellowship that we enjoy with Christ and the communion that we have with one another as believers, both in our families and in our extended family and the church, because of our mutual sharing in Christ's benefits? Are those the things that we will be most thankful for? I thought about what I would preach on this week, uh, Thanksgiving week, and it's always expected that the preacher will preach a thanksgiving sermon on Thanksgiving week. I always struggle with whether to do that before Thanksgiving or immediately following. As I ponder these things this week, it occurred to me probably the best thing I could do is is finish up what we've been talking about over the last two weeks relative to what we've been learning out of 1 Corinthians 10. We've been learning from 1 Corinthians 10 what it means to be sharers, sharers in Christ's shed blood and broken body. And Paul has instructed us about the value of the Lord's table. That because Jesus Christ offered himself on the cross, we who were his enemies have now become adoptive sons and daughters of God and heirs to all of the benefits that God purchased through his blood. Not only that, but we've also learned that daily sharing in the benefits of Christ is God's way of protecting us from the enticements of sin. The allurement of idolatry loses its appeal when we are satisfied with all that God has provided for us in Jesus. If that's not your experience, then let me suggest your experience needs to change. Your experience with the Lord Jesus Christ needs to change. There's more to your relationship with Christ than just showing up at church on Sunday and having your Bible reading in the morning. There's more to it than that. Now, we spent last week exploring some of the Psalms to see how David grounded his life and protected his own soul from discouragement and sin by delighting in the presence of God as the chief satisfier of his soul. In fact, one of David's recorded prayers that we didn't mention in the last two weeks is Psalm 90, verse 14 which reads, "Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days." I'm continuing to read in the Psalms, and every day as I read the Psalms, I I, I come across another one. This would be another great one to share with the body on Sunday. There are just so many, and I, I couldn't put them all into any one message. And so I encourage you to read them on your own. The question that we've not, I don't think, have adequately answered so far is is this. What does sharing in the benefits of God's purchased, um, the benefits that God has purchased for us by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, what does sharing in that practically involve? In other words, how do I do that? How do I regularly satisfy my soul in the benefits of Christ? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you've asked it. And so this morning, I'm, I'm going to give a partial answer to that. I've got about six or eight things this morning, and I'll just tell you what they are because there's no way I'm going to have time to delve into all of these. Uh, the first one is meditation on scripture, and uh, the second one is prayer, and there's also confession of sin. 1 John says, confess your sins to one another. There's fellowship. There's obviously the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism that Paul is hinting at and describing explicitly here in chapter 10. There's corporate worship. There's evangelism. There's giving of thanks. But I think the most important two are the first two, and I think that's all we'll have time for this morning. And so for the remainder of our time together... I'd like to explore these. Let me answer first, how do we do this very practically? How do we do this? Let me answer that question first with a negative proposition. The benefits of Christ are not shared in by osmosis. They are not shared in by osmosis. In other words, being satisfied in all that God has for you in Jesus does not normally happen spontaneously. You can't go to bed at night, slip your Bible under your pillow, and wake up in the morning a theologian. It just doesn't work like that. Yes, you may from time to time listen to an amazing sermon on the internet, or hear some soul-satisfying song that perhaps is is sung here in worship service or elsewhere that, that does something wonderful to your heart and sets your heart aflame. You may attend an especially powerful retreat or conference that warms your heart and fills you with new resolve to know Christ and to love him more and be more devoted to his word and prayer. That may happen. No doubt about that, but that only happens from time to time. If we're talking about becoming people whose lives are indelibly marked by a love of God that's rooted in communion with Christ, it can only happen by engaging in what we might call the duties of delight. The duties of delight. And so for the remainder of our time, I want us to talk about some of them, two of them. We should be, as believers, what, what should a believer do to begin finding his joy and satisfaction and delight in God? I know that's kind of an abstract idea. It's not just a matter of looking at the page and reading the words. Something has to happen in the heart. And so how can you engage in that? How can you pursue that? And I would suggest there are two main things, and all the other things that I read to you are important as well. The main thing I want you to see this morning is that it doesn't happen automatically. We've got to plan for it. We've got to make time for it. We've We've got to... put ourselves in positions where we actually do these things, or else engaging in in, and benefiting from the delight of being in God's presence and engaging in communion with him will rarely, rarely happen. But again, as I mentioned last week, the service of communion, the table, the bread and the wine are, are... are just a formal reminder that these are the things that we should be participating or sharing in every day of our lives because of the gospel. And so, number one, the first duty of delight is this, meditation on Scripture. Meditation on Scripture. Now, I would contend that this is the bedrock duty of delight upon which all the others are built, Becoming an active sharer in the benefits of the cross begins with internalizing God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word. To meditate on God's Word means to think upon a particular truth or passage of Scripture in order to squeeze all that you can out of it. Every morning when I come in here, I kind of have a morning cough, Um, and so... uh, I go to the back the soundboard because David always has cough drops for me. It's a great illustration of, and I won't do it, but it's a great illustration of what meditating is. Meditating is not sitting on a pillow with your legs crossed and your arms outstretched and saying weird sounds. Um, that's not meditation. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is taking a truth of God as revealed in his word, and kind of popping it into your heart like you would pop a hard candy into your mouth, and just rolling it around on your tongue and sucking every sweet morsel out of it that you can get. And then when you're done with that one, grab another one. As opposed to what? Well, as opposed to driving down the road and just flipping on the radio and let somebody else do the thinking for you. My wife and I are are memorizing a... A portion of scripture, one of the, the great New Testament scriptures. And um, I pulled those cards out this week, popped the radio off. I was on my way to the office and, and uh, I read Romans 8 1. It was the first thing on my card. And I thought, okay, let's take a run at this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You just pop that into your mouth for a little while and roll that around. I tell you what, it's glorious. (laughs) It's glorious. That's a promise from God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know how big a sinner you are, but I know how big a sinner I am. And that passage, man, I don't care what else has happened in the world around me at that moment, but that threw me, as it were, before the throne of God's grace. And I don't remember the road from there on to, until I got to the church, but I remember the worship. I remember communing with Christ over the reality That God in Christ has done everything necessary to cancel the debt of all of my sin. But this much I know as well. I can memorize that scripture and a hundred other scriptures and give no thought about the glory of God as revealed in that text. And beloved, we just can't let that happen. That's not what David did. Throughout the Psalms, David said things like this. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But listen to this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he does what, class? Meditates day and night. He's always, always got some scripture rolling around in his heart that he's trying to draw every sweet morsel out of. It was David's protection. It was David's glory. It was the thing that satisfied his soul. The fundamental secret to David's communion with God, I suggest, is that he disciplined himself to delight in the law of the Lord. That's what it says. To delight in the law of the Lord. He loved the word of God. In fact, another term that he used for his love for scripture is the word treasure, to treasure the word of God. And we see it again and again, but one of the most famous passages is Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you see the connection between treasuring, delighting in the word of God and protection from sin? Why? What's the connection? The connection is this. We only sin because we desire the thing that is tempting us. But if there is a way that we could change our heart desires, that we could redirect the desires of our hearts, it would keep us from taking the bait. And David knew. David knew what we should know, that treasuring If you're treasuring God's Word, if you're delighting in God's Word, then the allurements of every idolatry lose their appeal. Beloved, we need to be people who meditate on God's Word. You see that David kept his heart from being allured by counterfeit promises, the counterfeit promises of sin. And it was by disciplining himself in the delight of treasuring the soul-satisfying promises of God found in his word. And by the way, did you know Job did the same thing? Think of Job's struggles. Think of all of the temptation that Job faced. And At one point, in fact, kind of at the end of the book of Job, Job chapter 23, Job says this, this is how he kept... He kept his own heart from being allured by the promises of sin. And by the way, his wife even was an instrument to give him a false promise of sin. Just curse God and die. What's the promise there? It'll be better. It'll be better if you're dead than to experience the suffering you're experiencing. And that was a lie. It was a lie. But this was Job's perspective. He says this to God. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. More than my necessary food. Why do you think Job was such a righteous man? Why do you think he was able to endure the loss of ten of his children and everything he owned? How could he have endured losing all of that and having a wife giving him bad counsel? And I don't begrudge her for that. My word, she wanted his suffering to stop. I think we need to give Job's wife a break. She gave him bad counsel, but let's be a little compassionate toward her as well. But you know what? Even with that, Job didn't give in. You know why? Because he treasured God's word even more than his necessary food. What's more important to you in the morning, breakfast or Bible? That's too convicting. Let's move on. <laughs> Let me just add an addition that what was true of David and Job was also true of Jesus. When he was hungry after 40 days, 40 days of fasting, I mean, I go 40 minutes and I need something. 40 days of fasting, and Satan tempted him to use his power to turn stones into bread. You remember what Jesus said? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And by the way, he was using the word of God to remind him of the glory of the word of God. The word of God to remind him of the glory of God's word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is what satisfied Jesus' soul after 40 days of hunger, to look at stones, knowing that he had the authority to turn them to bread. And in that moment decided, bread's not what satisfies me. Even after 40 days of hunger, the thing that truly truly satisfies me is knowing that my Father is pleased. The people in the Bible, I suggest, the people in the Bible who knew God best were people who loved his word most. And it wasn't simply an intellectual knowing. It was a knowledge of the promises of God that they brought to bear on their souls as needed. For example, the very passage that Brent read this morning, Psalm 42, David says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Now, you know the answer to this question, but let me ask it anyway. Who is, who is David speaking to at this point? Who's David speaking to? He's speaking to himself. He's speaking to his own soul. Again, David writes in Psalm 103, verses 2 through 5, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities and heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. Again, who's he speaking to? He's not preaching to someone else. He's taking the truth of God that he learned from God's word and he's speaking it to himself. That's meditation. That's the kind of meditation that we need to engage in every time we face temptation. Meditation isn't just for that quiet time that you have in the morning. Meditation is, is something that should be happening in the midst of temptation. It should be something that we do on a regular basis because we love God's word. We know God's word. God's word is our shield, our strength, our deliverer. God's word is our might, our power, and it is the satisfier of our souls so that our souls will not go looking for other things. David understood in these two passages that his soul had begun looking for something to satisfy itself. And it was in despair. He was in despair because he wasn't finding what he wanted. And he hadn't realized until this point that he had turned his back on God. Or at least was being tempted to. And so what does he do? He speaks the truth of God's word to his soul. Soul, do you not remember? Soul, what are you doing? Have you forgotten the help of his presence? I don't know if you've thought about that phrase before, the help of his presence. What does that mean? David was being downright theological. The presence of God was the visible glory of God that Moses and the people who followed him could see. It was that which dwelt in the temple, in the tabernacle, but then in the temple of God. It was the very presence. It was called the Shekinah glory. David was thinking of that. God's presence, meaning God's person who is with us wherever we go. He is my help. He is my rock, my strong tower, my fortress. There is no need for me to despair. In fact, it would be sin, soul, for you to despair. Remember God's promises. We need to be people like that. We need to be people who know God's word well enough that in a moment of crisis, in a moment of temptation, we can bring the word of God to bear on our own hearts. But here's the thing, beloved. We can't experience such delight in God when despair comes knocking without a deep knowledge of that word. We cannot delight in the soul-satisfying scriptures that we don't know And we don't learn it by osmosis. It takes work. It takes discipline. That's why I'm calling it the discipline of delight. And by the way, this is one of the reasons I love what uh, is happening in Awanas every Sunday night. Our children memorizing God's word. And some critics will say, listen, they don't even understand what they're memorizing. I know that. I know that. I didn't understand it either when I was memorizing it. That's not the point. The point is this. Someday they will have the capacity to understand. And guess what they'll already have? They'll already have it treasured in their heart. By the way, that's the whole philosophy of classical education. Memorize, 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 memorize. Later they'll understand. And when they do, they'll have it all treasured up in their hearts. That's what Iwana's is about. Take in the Word of God and memorize, 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 memorize. Catch whatever you can. Instruct however you can instruct so that they can understand. But know this, they're not going to get it all in terms of understanding. But sooner or later, God's going to turn the light on in their mind, and it's all going to make sense, and they're going to bless you. They're going to say, oh, Mom and Dad, thank you for teaching me. Thank you for taking me to Awana week after week after week to help me learn all of these scriptures. I needed them. This week, and I had them. We do that for our kids, but what do we do for ourselves? What do we do for ourselves? Meditation takes discipline. We simply must discipline ourselves in the duties of delight. And so, the first duty of delight is meditation on God's Word, the second is personal communion with God in prayer. Personal communion with God in prayer. Now, I know there's been a lot said about prayer over the last many years and perhaps centuries, and there's a lot of mystical kinds of stuff that people talk about in terms of some people call it the listening room. This is where you hear from God, you hear the voice. can Can I tell you what prayer is? Prayer is talking to God, period. Prayer is you talking to God. You want to listen to God? Open this. This is you listening to God, Reading his word is listening to God. Praying is talking to God. It's a two-way conversation. You listen to God's word, and you respond, and you present your needs and anything else that's on your heart. But that's what prayer is about. Now, I know every Christian prays, but why do we pray? Why do you pray? More importantly, why does God want us to pray? It sounds like a simple question, but I want to stir this up a little bit because it comes, becomes all the more profound when we consider the reality of God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. The Bible teaches that God exhaustively plans and meticulously carries out all his holy will and does it without failure or defeat in even the smallest details. And he receives no help from anyone outside himself. He is absolutely sovereign. That's what it means to be absolutely sovereign. That's God. That's what it means to be God. And if that's true, then the question comes, well, then why should we pray? I mean, if God is really sovereign over everything that happens, if he's planned it before the creation of the world, then why pray? Well, that's a good question. What does a mortal, finite, sinful man have to contribute to the plan of almighty, sovereign God of the universe, who is infinite in all of his perfections? Yes, we're commanded to pray, but why is prayer not an exercise in religious futility if God is sovereign? The first answer to that question is this, and it's a little bit theological, but I'll, I'll try to walk us through it. The first answer to this question is, is, is this, God has not only ordained the ends that he intends to accomplish regarding all his holy will, everything that happens, he's not only ordained the ends, the outcome, he has also ordained the means of that outcome. In other words, they will not only happen as God directed, but even the means by which those things are accomplished have been ordained. And for many of those things, the way God has ordained for his sovereign will to be carried out is through the prayers of his people, which is simply to say this prayer in part is for the believers benefit that we might know the joy of participating in what God is sovereignly working out according to his own holy will in the universe, everywhere in the universe. And by the way, let me just direct you to a scripture. This is uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is that great text that tells us who we are in Christ and what God has done. And this is a great sovereignty passage, one of the the, uh, seminal texts in all of the Word of God on that particular issue. But there's a comment made in verse 11 where... The Apostle Paul reveals this, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Now, whose purpose? Him who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things. So why pray? Because God has not only ordained the ends, but he has ordained the means And some of those means includes our prayers. We get to participate in what God is doing through prayer. And so we pray for the lost. We pray for the sick. We pray for our own needs. We pray for whatever it is that that wherever there's a need, we pray. We petition God. This is why James can say in James 5.16... The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Why? Because God needs our prayers. Without our prayers, he can't accomplish anything? No. But by the mystery of God's sovereign grace, he has welcomed us into the process so that he is chosen in and of himself to accomplish many things only through the means of prayer. And so we pray. And so we pray. The point here is that We cannot contribute anything fundamentally necessary for God to accomplish his will, but he graciously invites us to participate in what he's doing by the means of prayer. And he is sovereignly orchestrated that some of the glorious things that he intends to accomplish will come about only by the means of the prayers of his people. Beloved, that's amazing. It is amazing. And it's deep. And it's theological. And all of that. But you know what? For me... It's not been very motivational. I mean, I've taught this before, and okay, so what happens if I don't pray? Well, he's, he's going to do his his holy will, and I don't understand how all that works. And frankly, I haven't been terribly motivated by that. Not usually. Sometimes, yes, not usually. It doesn't drive me to the cross necessarily. And I, and I don't think there's, there's uh, the fault there lies in the truth of Scripture, obviously. The fault lies in my own heart. And maybe, I was thinking about this, why doesn't that motivate me? It may be that because I'm not naturally a driven person. I'm not overly ambitious. I mean, I have my ambitions, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not a type A kind of alpha male, you know, if I were, maybe that, maybe that would excite me more. I love to pray. I love to pray and see God answer prayer. I love it when you pray. I will never in my life forget when my mom was sick and we had already called the funeral home because she was as good as gone. we had already set up the service. And some of you kept coming to her bedside and praying. And me, the spiritual one, the pastor kept saying, in my mind, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. And it wasn't. And I believe with all my heart that God so orchestrated to teach me the power of prayer through the prayers of many of you who came, as I was standing there in unbelief, you came trusting God. Well, that was interesting. (laughs) Nobody can see what just happened on tape, but uh, something interesting just happened. But um, day after day, people kept coming and praying. And you know what? God healed her. And I don't say that flippantly. I am very, very reserved when it comes to saying that person was healed. Beloved, there's no doubt. There's no doubt the surgeon went back in and said, It's gone, the cancer's gone. And she will probably be here in the second service this morning to prove that she was healed. How did that happen? Beloved, I have no doubt. It was through the prayers of God's people. God ordained not only the end, but the means to that end, which was the prayers of God's people. And I need to be really careful that I don't short-circuit that with all of my highfalutin theology but there's something that does motivate me to prayer. It brings us to another reason why we who serve an infinitely sovereign God should pray. I was greatly helped with this two weeks ago by Dr. Bruce Ware over at Southern Seminary. He wrote a chapter in a new book called For the Fame of God's Name. In it, Dr. Ware makes the point that God has devised prayer also as a means to draw us into close, intimate relationship with him, the self-sufficient God who possesses all and needs nothing. He writes these words. Although God already knows our needs and already knows every request we would ever make, nonetheless, he commands us to bring these very needs and requests before him. Why? Certainly not so that he can learn from us what our needs are. Rather, the God who does not need us is nevertheless passionate about relationship with us. Although he cannot gain or benefit from what we bring to him, he deeply desires us to come before him with all of our concerns. As the Apostle Peter writes, cast all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you this is not some kind of mechanical relationship this is an intimate relationship with the glorious creator god beloved this is the one of the most startling and glorious realizations that any christian can come to it's that the purpose of prayer has much to do with one simple thing communion with god Fellowship with God. It's a relationship wherein he is always the independent giver. And we are always the dependent receiver. And when we come in dependence upon him, seeking in him all that we need and all that we desire and all that we are anxious and worried about, he is greatly glorified and we become deeply satisfied. It's all about the glory of God. It's not that he needs us to instruct him. It's not that we, he needs something from us that he doesn't already possess and have full access to. It's not that he can't do things unless we give him permission or make requests. He is sovereign God. But. But he loves it when we come. He who used to be our judge with sword, above our head, ready to strike in judgment, has now become our gracious, loving Father who isn't angry at us anymore but bids us seek, ask, knock, don't stay away, I want you to be in my presence, for therein am I glorified, and you are greatly satisfied. The two always go together. The glory of God and the satisfaction of his people are inextricably united. It's it's why so often I'm so convinced of that, that almost every prayer I pray, I end by saying something about the glory of God and our own joy the glory of God, and our own joy. I love how Piper describes this. It's like, it's like a well. It's like a like a spring, a bubbling spring that is available for us to come and drink from. It's not like a well that we have to throw our buckets down into. It's, it's not something that we have to... It's not like a cistern that we may have to come and contribute water to and then draw it out. We don't contribute anything to a spring. The spring just bubbles up. It bubbles up water. And how is the spring glorified? How is the spring made much of? Not by us taking our buckets and adding to what's coming out of the spring, but rather simply going and drinking. Drinking until we are fully satisfied. I think that's a good picture for our relationship with God and for God's invitation for us to come and pray. Beloved, for me, this is truly both amazing and motivational. Nothing makes me want to pray more than the realization that God actually enjoys my coming to him in prayer, that he desires for me to come and talk to him about my children Now, some of you in this body I'm I'm very close with, and you know what? When we sit down over coffee, we talk about all kinds of things. And It occurred to me recently as I was wrestling through this text in 1 Corinthians 10, what does it mean to be sharers in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that mean? How does that relate to the Lord's Supper? How does that relate to my daily practice of my relationship with God? And one day I was talking with one of my uh, closer friends in this body And we talked and 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 talked. And at the end, I realized, We just talked about my kids. We talked about his family. We talked about issues. We talked about the things that I love, the things that I don't like, the things that are really bugging me. And it occurred to me at the end of our conversation, have I spent that much time talking to God about these things? Have I fellowshiped as much with God as I just did with my friend? Or is God somebody I come to only in a fit of passion because I need his help or in a fit of duty because I got to get it done or else I'm going to feel guilty. One more quote from Dr. Ware was helpful to me. He writes this. Prayer is not an end in itself, but a God-ordained, God-designed means of grace. Through prayer, God gives himself to us and we are drawn into his presence and his fullness. We do ourselves no favor then when we hold on to pretenses of self-ability and self-attainment for in any and every way that we refuse to humble ourselves before God, we lose. But God, in his grace, wants us to gain he wants us to gain. Beloved, this is why, time and time again in Scripture, God beckons us to come to Him and to receive what He alone can provide. In fact, one of the very last statements in the Bible, Revelation 22, last chapter, verse 17, God ends His word by saying this The Spirit and the bride say, Come and let all let all who, thir- who hear say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take water of life without cost. It's virtually the same thing the prophet Isaiah said. It's one of the very last things that God says in his word. From beginning to end, we are invited to Come. Come, come to him, commune with him, find our joy in him, find our satisfaction in him, find in him our strong tower, our mighty fortress, and everything else that he has promised to be for us in Jesus. God loves to be the giver. He is glorified when we choose to come to him for fellowship and communion And to tell him our needs and desires and fears and hopes and anxieties and sins and and everything else. What a privilege. What a glorious privilege it is to belong to such a God. I tell you, beloved, there there are no other gods, first of all. But even of all of the false gods, none of them even falsely offers this. Man can't make this up. But this is who God is. Once again, this is not something that happens by osmosis. We must make time to engage in this duty of delight. It doesn't come without planning and effort. In fact, one of the most difficult duties of the Christian life is prayer. But one of the most satisfying duties of the Christian life is prayer. Prayer is speaking to God. Reading his word is listening to God. The two go hand in hand. And so if we want to be daily sharers in the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the benefits that we derive from that by God's grace, beloved, we've got to be passionate about the word of God. And we've got to be passionate about prayer. Prayer. I am aware of no more meaningful and satisfying way to commune with God and share in the benefits of Christ's sacrifice than through frequent, humble, transparent, vulnerable, soul-satisfying prayer. We must be a people of prayer. We must be. We must also be people who are quick to confess sin, resolving to walk in the light, people who love fellowship, in which we talk with one another about the glory of God that we have seen and savored during the week, the ordinance of the, of the Lord's table and baptism, reminders of God's grace, reminders of God's call to communion with Himself. It's not the only thing that the Lord's table represents, but it's a big thing. Corporate worship singing, listening to the word of God preach, giving all of these. Are ways to benefit in what God has provided for us through the cross, evangelism, and finally, giving thanks. Giving thanks. In Romans 1, we don't have time to look at this, but I'll close with this. In Romans 1, one of the marks of radical unbelievers, the people whose God's, upon whom God is pouring out his judgment, is that they refuse to be thankful. They refuse to be thankful to God. They recognize none of his benefits. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And even though God causes it to rain on the evil and the good, they give him no credit. What about us, beloved? What will we be thankful for this week? What will we give thanks for this Thanksgiving? I pray for my own soul and for yours that the things that we give thanks for, the most important things to us will be the most important things to God. And the things that are most precious to us will be the things that are most precious to God. And that loving God and being loved by him And enjoying that sweet communion with God through his word and through prayer and through simple obedience will be top on our list. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, and we thank you for this season that we have to worship you with our families in a unique way, to gather around some of your material blessings by way of food and and other things, and to give thanks to you for the glory of your grace. But, oh, Father, I pray that this season we would be people who give you thanks most for the things that you purchased for us through the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our communion, which was purchased by him, will be most precious to us, that your word And fellowshipping with you in prayer will be most precious to us. That the forgiveness of sins and the granting of a righteousness that we could not earn would be most precious to us. That relationship with people who we would normally be at odds with, but you have brought about reconciliation between us would be most precious to us because it reflects your gospel. Oh, Father, make it so in our lives this week. For your glory... And yes, Father, for our own great joy. For we pray it by the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.